A dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. Where did that come from? Cinderella. Didn't see that coming, did you? Opening a message of Cinderella. There's also a famous man who's well known for a famous speech whose refrain was, I have a dream. And last year there was a hit movie whose soundtrack became the number one selling album in the UK this year. The Greatest Showman has a song, A Million Dreams, in which some of the lyrics are, I close my eyes and I can see the world that's waiting up for me, that I call my own, through the dark, through the door, through where no one's been before, but it feels like home. Because every night I lie in bed, the brightest colors fill my head. A million dreams are keeping me awake. I think of what the world could be, a vision of the one I see. A million dreams is all it's going to take. A million dreams for the world we're going to make. So, that's some three very well-known dreams. Each of these dreams come to someone who's in the dark. The dreamers of these dreams are in darkness in each situation. It was not the greatest situation for them. And when we come to Jeremiah, we come to a book that's been largely dark. It's a very dark, morbid book about death, about things falling apart, about exile. It's basically a great big divorce between God and his people. And he's accusing them of unfaithfulness and that he, he has to give up on them because they have cheated him. It's a big, ugly book. Yet here in the middle of the book, we get as if the storm had just... The clouds have just parted and a big ray of sunshine is coming in. It gives us enough hope to keep going through this book of death and divorce and exile and devastation and destruction. And we come to this exciting passage where there's suddenly that ray of light. And we realize even in the darkest of times, dreams are still born. Because frankly, we dream most vividly. We dream most vividly when it's the most dark. And we see Jeremiah do this. Now, before we read in chapter 30, you need to go ahead to see where all this is coming from. In chapter 31, verse 26. 31, 26. At this, Jeremiah says, I awoke and looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. So in 3126, our prophet suddenly says, hey, it was all a dream. I just woke up, and probably for the first time in his life, he had a good night's sleep. Jeremiah, the one hounded by everyone, hated by the popular prophets and the priests and the kings, he didn't have it easy, as we've seen in parts. But he had one good night of sleep. He says, I awoke, and I looked around me, and my sleep was pleasant. What we enter in chapter 30 is the dream that Jeremiah dreams in the darkest season of Israel's history. So, you guys ready to look at it? What we need to know 
is that you and I, when we enter into darkness, when we don't have a sense of orientation, when we don't know which is the right path, when we can't make sense of things, or things aren't as clear as we want them to be, when we are in whatever season of darkness we enter into, it's in these seasons that God wants to inspire his people with the vision of dreams of what could be and what he will do. It's in the darkest times that God will allow us to dream the most vividly. And I don't literally mean when you're asleep and in bed. You could have dreams like that. Joseph had a dream where he said, take Mary as your wife. The wise men had a dream where they, he, they were told, don't go back to Pharaoh. He's trying to harm the child. Joseph had a dream. You could have those dreams in your dark seasons. But it's also in these bottom moments where we finally realize God is up to something. As C.S. Lewis said, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but screams in our pain. It's when life is the darkest that his light comes the most vividly to us. And so Jeremiah dreams in this dark hour. To give you an example of the dark hour, if you look at verse 5 of chapter 30, thus says Yahweh, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror, and no peace. That's dark. Terror, panic, no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Rhetorically, you should say, no. Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? These are dark times. Why has every face turned pale? Alas, verse 7, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob. Yet he shall be saved out of it. Jeremiah is aware that Israel is about to enter into the greatest distress of their existence. Their temple will be dismantled piece by piece, and the city of God will be flattened. And they will be relocated to a pagan empire. And this is more than just leaving the comfort of life. The distress is also in the thought of, wait, our God promised to protect us. If we're no longer protected, what does that mean about our God? Suddenly, the God who was all light and love and wonder is suddenly dark and mysterious and you don't understand why is this happening? What's going on? What does this mean about our God? This is a distressing time for Jacob, a nickname for Israel. Look also at verse um, 12, actually middle of verse 11, chapter 30, 11. I will discipline you, God speaking to Israel, in just measure. In other words, I will give you what you deserve. And I will by no means leave you unpunished. For thus says Yahweh, Your hurt is incurable, and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause. No medicine for your wound. No healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain 
is incurable because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Does it sound like he's repeating himself? He is. (laughs) I have done these things to you. Talk about dark times for Israel. Yet in the midst of this, in the midst of this, we have these two chapters, chapter 30 and 31, which scholars call the book of comfort. The book of comfort. Because God in this moment, in this really dark season, there's this ray of light, the shaft comes to them and says, but wait, but wait, this is not how the story ends. Night always gives way to day in my world, God says. Winter in its coldest, iciest, hardest, most isolated, death-invading landscape always gives way to spring and then eventually comes to fruition in summer. So, chapter 30, verse 1, we see the hope. The word that came to Jeremiah from Yahweh, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, write in a book. See? So, first time Jeremiah is commanded to actually write something down. So, this is why it's called the book of comfort, the book of hope, the book of consolation. It says, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says Yahweh. And I will bring them back to the land that I gave their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Good news, Israel. It's all going to end well, eventually. Look, let's take a look at some of the things that are going to happen. Verse 10. Remember, this is Jeremiah's dream. Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares Yahweh, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease and none shall make him afraid, for I am with you to save you, declares Yahweh. That's good news. So look, no matter where you go, I will comfort you and I will bring you back, Jacob. Remember, Jacob is a nickname for Israel. It's an affectionate term. In 30 verse 17, we see, I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal, declares Yahweh. This is right after he said in a few verses above, your your wound is incurable. Your pain is incurable. Now he's saying, I will heal you. So in the darkest moment, Jeremiah gets this dream in which he sees the future is not going to be dark forever. Then we look at verse 21, and here we see some of the real big promises coming. 30-21. Their prince, Israel's prince, shall be one of themselves. Their prince shall be one of them. This is, this is big news to a people who have been living under a king who was established as a puppet by the Babylonians. Now, if you are a big bad evil empire coming to take over another kingdom, one of the things you do, as soon as you scare them so bad that they start giving you money just to not destroy them, one of the things you do is you say, Okay, good. Now that I own you, let me put a king over you who will do everything I want him to do. 
a king who will be so scared for his life, all I have to do is say, jump, and he'll ask how high on the way up. That's what Israel's been living under, are kings who are puppets to the Babylonian masters. And finally, God is saying, Jeremiah is envisioning a time when they will have a prince who is one of themselves. No more puppets, no more Babylonian influence. They will rule themselves. They will be a free people. Just like America, right? We wanted... um, we didn't want taxation without representation. So ultimately what ended up happening is we just threw the British out of our land so that we could rule ourselves. And this is what Israel's going to have one day. Now continue, see what this prince looks like. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. It's repeating itself. Now I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. So this ruler will draw near and approach God himself. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares Yahweh. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Isn't this interesting? Your ruler is going to come from your midst, and he will approach me. So their kings who had been leading them away from God and into idolatry and into all the things that have gotten them in trouble, they will finally have a ruler who comes up from their midst. He's one of them, and he will approach God himself. Do you, do you see this? Do you, do you see who this is describing? This is Jesus. This is, this is the king who comes from their midst, who approaches the Father himself. The king who can stand between God and the people as a bridge Jeremiah is dreaming of this coming ruler, although he doesn't know him by name yet. Chapter 31, he continues to dream. At that time, declares Yahweh, I will be the God of the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. If you look, uh, let's keep going. Verse 2, thus says Yahweh, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, Yahweh appeared to them from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. That needs to be highlighted. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Israel was unfaithful to God. They did what they wanted. They ran away from him. And God saying, yeah, yeah. And you're going to go through a very dark period for that. But my love hasn't stopped. And even in that blackest, inkiest abyss, my love will pierce through that fog and you will find your way again. Because I never stopped being faithful. I love this in verses 4 and 5. You see the word, at least in the ESV, you see the word again repeating. It says, again I will build you, and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again you shall... Virgin Israel? (laughs) Earlier in the book, Jeremiah was saying how the family unit, God being the husband, Israel being the wife, is going through divorce. It's falling apart because Israel is like, do you remember this imagery? Israel is like the wild donkeys in the wilderness in heat. 
in heat means in their sexual passion. The donkey in that time of year sniffing the wind to find its mate, just going around thinking about one thing. That was Israel, Jeremiah said. And now, and now in this dream, it's O virgin Israel, as if there was never an unfaithfulness. Again, it says again, again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Dancing in the Bible is not something that's scary. Sometimes we get scared of that. But dancing is always merriment in the Bible. If you are dancing, it's because you have security and it's because love is happening and people are joining together and there's music and there's food. Dancing's a good sign of good times. So the dancing will happen again. Verse 5, again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall eat, uh, shall enjoy the fruit. So uh, that threefold again, again, you will be built, O virgin. Again, you shall dance. Again, you will eat your own food. It's getting good. And then we go forward. And in verse 7, for thus says Yahweh, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Whoa. So from this darkness being the floor mat of the Babylonian empire, they're now going to be the chief of the nations. And they got uh, that's something to shout and sing with gladness about. Um, and in verse 8, we see, Behold, I will bring them from the north country, Babylon, and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth. No matter how far they've wandered, no matter how widely they've been scattered, I will find them and I will bring them back home. Among them, the blind and the lame, the pregnant woman and she who is in labor together. They are part of who are going to come back. Blind, lame, pregnant. Now, back then, the blind and the lame were undesirable. You wouldn't really want to go seek them out. And, sorry ladies, but being pregnant was sort of like a a bottom of the totem pole status at the time. When you were pregnant, you were kind of in the way. Um, That's how they saw it back then. It's like, thanks for the baby, but until then. (laughs) Um, But that's what he's saying is that, look, even those that are not necessarily sought out or desired will be gathered. This is going to be a great reunion of all kinds of people. And it reminds me, a lot of these chapters remind me of Jesus. And it seems that he intentionally went out of his way to the blind and the lame, and you can't help but think because that was part of the dream Jeremiah had. That in the darkest of times, you will find the ruler from your midst who will go after the blind and the lame. And Jesus indeed did. Verse 9, with weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble, for I am a father to Israel. And Ephraim, another nickname for the northern kingdom, if you remember, they were the wickedest one. And Ephraim is my firstborn. So the family unit that fell apart in chapters 2 through 6 is coming back together in this dream. You see why Jeremiah wakes up and says, Ah, that was nice. For once I didn't have to preach a sermon that people threw tomatoes at me for. He just gets to dream this and write it down in a book so that people can yell at him later. 
or read it and be encouraged. Um, Let's skip down now to verse 12. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. Again, singing, dancing. It's all just, these are the times you want to be. Um, it was the worst of times. It was the best of times. This is all the best of times and no, uh, none of the worst of times. They, so they shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion. They shall be radiant over the goodness of Yahweh, over the grain, the wine, and the oil, and over the young of the flock and the herd. Their life shall be like a watered garden, and they shall languish no more. So there you have prosperity. And the mention of the garden is meant to make you think of the garden, Eden. And so there's going to be this time when it will be like it was meant to be. Dancing and singing and having your food and having a king who actually cares about you and knows God. And you will not, I love that line, they will not languish anymore. Do you languish? Do you, yeah, I think, we, I think we all languish quite a bit in this world. In fact, I came across um, this in a book this week, and I thought this was so appropriate. Uh, it's, it's, this, it's this creed that a church recites. I don't know what church it is, but it was in the book. And it's this. They recite this every Sunday. They say, As followers of Jesus Christ, living in this world, so as followers of Jesus Christ, living in this world, which some seek to control... Others view with despair, but we declare with joy and trust, our world belongs to God. So they gather, and they say, as believers living in this world, which some try to control and some view with despair, we declare that our world belongs to God. And that's... We want to control things, or we're despairing over things. It's two opposite reactions to what's going on. But the bottom line is that we're all languishing, and we're dealing with it differently. But believers need to come together, and in our darkness, realize that there is a dream, if we're willing to, to allow God to give it to us, that sees this world belongs to our God. Yes, it may be dark, and we may be languishing, but there will be a garden. And the dream will sustain us until then. Um, 13 continues. The young woman, then shall the young women rejoice in the dance, and the young men and the old shall be merry. This, this means people are living a long time, right? Because the young and the old are together, and they're all happy. It's not the young people's nation. It's not the old people's nation. All of them are united. I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the soul of the priests with abundance. And my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares Yahweh. And there you have it. We languish because we're seeking satisfaction. And sometimes we don't seek satisfaction in the right things at all. Because we know, we know that this isn't what it's cracked up to be, so we're seeking satisfaction from something. But it's not satisfying. But there will come a time when what we pursue will satisfy us. Because God will be our God and we will be his people. Man, God does not want to starve us. That's not the idea. Like, oh, I'm a Christian now. I've got to give up all these pleasurable things. Like, C.S. Lewis has a great, great quote. It's, uh, it's in his um, sermon, The Weight of Glory. He says, 
He says, we are like those who don't know what God means when he offers us a holiday at sea. We instead go and play with a tin can in a muddy ditch. I reverse that, but he says, we, we play with a tin can in a ditch because we don't understand that God's offering us a holiday at sea. A cruise, all expenses paid, all-inclusive cruise. You can eat five meals a day and not be charged anymore, right? I don't know if any of you have ever done that. Sounds good. Um, but we're playing with tin cans in the gutter because we don't get it. Our aims, he then concludes, is that God does not hold us guilty for having our desires too great. He holds us guilty because our desires are too small. We settle because, frankly, we don't dream. We don't dream. We look at the darkness and say, I'm going to try to control it, or we despair. But Jeremiah dreams, and this sustains him for the rest of the book. And I think that might be why this is in the middle of the book, because we need to understand that we can't settle. Keep dreaming, even in the darkness. God will satisfy your deepest longing. And we may not experience that in this lifetime. We may get glimpses of it, but he will for the one who keeps dreaming and going. But as dreams do, they move very weirdly, right? So check out this in verse 15. Thus says Yahweh, right after that wonderful passage, a voice is heard in Ramah, their lamentation and bitter weeping. What? No. Come on, this is good. Now we're singing and dancing and celebrating. Everyone's satisfied and now we're weeping. Bitter lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children. Rachel being one of the matriarchs of Israel. She's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So Jeremiah, in the midst of this great dream, has this flashback to the place, Ramah, was a city where the exiles, the Babylonians, would herd them up to the city of Ramah, and it became one of the depots for exporting the Israelites to Babylon. So Ramah became a horror place, right? Um, you can just, for more of a modern comparison, you can think of the train station where Jews would be herded onto cattle carts and taken off to the concentration camps. That's what Ramah was like. It was that deportation station. And so Rachel, the, 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 the matriarch of Israel, is weeping over her children. We're reminded that, yeah, he's dreaming, but the darkness is real and it's present. But, oh, by the way, you know that this passage is quoted in the Christmas story, right? When Herod slaughters the children in Bethlehem, Matthew takes this verse to explain what's happening. Even in the darkness, the star shines and the wise men have their dream and they find the Christ. So in verse 16, thus says Yahweh, keep your voice from weeping. So as dreams do, right, they kind of morph, they merge, they go in weird places you can't always control, and Jeremiah goes back toward horror, but then God steps in and says, wait, wait, don't weep, don't weep, keep the dream going. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares Yahweh. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares Yahweh, and your children shall come back to their own country. I have heard Ephraim grieving. You have disciplined me. And I was disciplined like an untrained calf. Bring me back that I may be restored, for you are Yahweh my God? 
For after I had turned away, I relented. And after I was instructed, I struck my thigh. You know, you do that, you're like, got it. I struck my thigh. I was ashamed and I was confounded because I bore the disgrace of my youth. So look, Israel made mistakes in their youth and they realize it. And they're asking God to take us back, and he will. He's going to take them back. Verse 20, is Ephraim, again, another code for his people, another, another pet name. Is Ephraim my dear son? Is he my darling child? For as often as I speak against him, I do remember him still. Therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares Yahweh. So, Jeremiah, the dream is still good. Keep going. Set up road markers, verse 21, for yourself. And make yourself guideposts. Consider well the highway, the road by which you went. Look, they were, they were exported to Babylon. Put up the street markers now. Pave the road. Make sure it's clear. Plow the snow, whatever you have to do. Bring the people back. Get ready for the great homecoming, is what he's saying there. Return, O virgin Israel, return to these your cities. How long will you waver, O faithless daughter? For Yahweh has created a new thing on earth. A woman encircles a man. What does that mean? The best explanation I heard, and there's a few weird ones, is that a woman encircles a man. The best that made sense to me was when you have a baby, the woman encircles the baby. And so there's going to be a man-child born. I love that phrase, man-child. No one says it, but it comes from the Bible. So I always say it when I'm teaching the Bible. A man-child will be born. And, um, but you see, here we have this promise, come back, come back. And of course, before Christ begins to speak on earth, who, who makes the way for him? John the Baptist, right, is preparing the way for the Lord. So he, of course, he's quoting Isaiah. But Isaiah and Jeremiah have the same vision of make a road so that the lost ones can come home. And that includes us. Like, we're thinking we're, we're reading about an ancient kingdom that was devastated by the Babylonians, but no. We're, we're learning as we look at Jesus that we are all the ones scattered around. We've all lost our original home. We're all languishing. We're all living in the darkest of nights. And yet the prophets come and say, put up road signs, pave it, plow the snow, make a way for the people to come home. And this, this, this woman encircling a man is speaking of new birth. And new birth is what Jesus said he'd come to give. And remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus in the darkness. John makes it very clear. It was the dark of night. He comes to Jesus. And Jesus says, you must be born again. I've come to make sons and daughters. I'm adding this now from other parts of John. But I've come to make sons and daughters of the king. You must be born again. And here Jeremiah is foreseeing, very very cryptically, but we can see it with our hindsight, he's foreseeing a time when there will be new births, new creations. So have you, you've been on this road if you've been born again, right? You've been rebirthed as a new person under Christ. Well, um, so let's now get to where he wakes up. Verse 25, 23. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, once more they shall, they shall use these words in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. Yahweh bless you, O habitation of righteousness, O holy hill. So once again, they will just talk blessings upon their city because it's a blessed place. 24. And Judah and all its cities shall dwell there together. And the farmers and those who wander with their flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul and every languishing soul. 
I will replenish. And that is when Jeremiah wakes up. Now I can see why he looked and his sleep was pleasant to him. I think we need, we need to dwell in this dream more often. We despair, we languish, we are uncomfortable with the darkness that rules the present world, but we have to remember the dream. And the dream, if we want to get super corny, I, we, I have a dream. And so what Jeremiah is saying, this is his I have a dream sermon. And he's reminding the people that no matter how dark the night, our God is king. He is king. And things will come to pass as described. And what's interesting about dreams is that, well, I'm no psychoanalysis, but um, I've done some reading. <laughs> and there's theories that dreams come from the subconscious. It's the subconscious trying to make itself present in your conscience. And that really, when we say, talk, talk things about like Martin Luther King Jr. saying, I have a dream, or Cinderella saying a dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep, is that dreams are something that come from deep within that want expression. And the Christian knows the dream of the kingdom of God, but we are not always apt at giving it expression because the darkness suffocates and it feels so real. But there is, there is implanted within all of God's people this hope, this yearning, this longing, this recognition that there is more than meets the eye. That we have only gotten a taste, a little morsel falling from the table of the great banquet which we will one day sit at and participate in. And that's deep within us, whether we know how to vocalize it, articulate it or not, whether it's been suppressed or brought out, it's there. It's there. And Jeremiah has this moment where it gets to come out and he can see it in all of its beauty. The people of God all have this dream. It's deep within us. But are we letting it? Are we trusting it? Are we, are we marveling over what God will do? Or are we like worldlings? C.S. Lewis talks about this in mere Christianity. The fool says, there's no dream. It's all in what I can pursue. And of course, then you have to move on from one thing to another thing to another person to another person because none of them are quite satisfying you. Or there's the so-called wise man who says, oh, I've grown up out of dreams. It's all childish stuff. One day you'll wake up and realize that the world is real and harsh. You can't dream anymore. And Lewis is like, well, no, the dream wasn't rainbows and unicorns. I mean, it wasn't supposed to be like that. But the Christian looks and says, we use the word hope. That's what our dream is. We use the word hope. We have hope that there's something tangible that's going to happen. So he wakes up and then he gets, he gets busy and he writes this down and this is the climax. He has the dream and he realizes this is going to happen. And this is the most famous passage in Jeremiah. 2911, I know the plans I have for you, plans of peace, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Yeah, yeah, that's his famous one because we like that one. But theologically, in other words, the New Testament sees what we're about to read as the most important verse in Jeremiah. Is it cited? It's quoted multiple times. It's it's up there with the top five in the entire Old Testament. If you want to go by how many times the New Testament references it. This is a big deal. So, 
we look at verse 31. 31, 31. Easy to remember. I said verse, but it's really a paragraph. So let's go for it. 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant. You can circle, underline that phrase, new covenant, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, read sins, and I will remember their sin no more. That is the new covenant. And Jeremiah says, it's coming. He wakes up from the dream and says, here's the conclusion, here's the summation of the matter. I had a dream and it's going to lead us. It's going to, all these little streams of what I saw in my dream are compiling into a big river which is going to lead us into the ocean of the new covenant. And there, there, we're going to see the summation of this is that people will have, get this, People will have an intrinsic, intimate relationship with their God. Intrinsic, intimate relationship. Look at it with me. Intrinsic. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Intrinsic. Intrinsic means it's it's, it's, it's already a part of you from within. It doesn't have to be added. There. It, it's, it's there. The new covenant, this, this thing that's going to happen, this new promise, this new relationship between God and humans is going to have an intrinsic element. We're going to have this intrinsic, intimate relationship. But starting with intrinsic, he's going to put his words in us. It's not like we're going to have to say, oh, the Bible, I should take this verse with me and put a sticky here to remind me that I'm beautiful and that he loves me and that I'm forgiven and I'm going to write it on my hand and put a bumper sticker on my car. We try to get scripture into us through a variety of ways, but this will be intrinsically in us. The breath of God, the breath that brought the universe into being will be breathed into us and we will be inhaling and exhaling the very words of our creator. Intrinsic. I will write it on their hearts. In other words, my desires will now be in complete alignment. Without even having to try, my desires will be in alignment with the kings. Also, intrinsic, it's intimate. This is an intimate relationship. You see that in verse 34. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. They all know me. That's intimacy. It's not second-hand information from God. Like, I'm going to go to church and hear what the preacher has to say because I don't know what God thinks about me today. That's real. That's real. People are like, I don't know what God thinks about me. I'm going to hear what the preacher says. I don't know what I'm supposed to believe. I'm going to hear what the teacher tells me. I believe whatever my doctrine at my church says. I don't know, whatever they say, that's what I believe. 
there's a lot of second-hand knowledge about God, and I'm not by no means trying to rip us or put us down. We all have that to a degree, but there's coming a time when the relationship will not be passed down, not be taught to us, not be second-hand, not be so-and-so said, it will be intimate. You will have face-to-face knowledge of him. So it's going to be intrinsic, it's going to come from within, and it's going to be intimate, because outwardly, it's going to be close. An intrinsic, intimate relationship. That is the new covenant. Now, friends, buckle your seatbelts, because if you want to turn there, go ahead, otherwise jot it down. Luke 22 blows our minds. In Luke 22, you know this so well, you just never heard it this way before. Or if you have, you've been in Bible studies before then. But in Luke 22, verse 20, Jesus is sitting at the Last Supper with his disciples, and they... um, have broken the bread and they've passed around. This is my body broken for you. But then he takes the cup. This is good stuff. Luke 22 verse 20. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, Jesus is speaking, this cup is poured out for you. This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. What? Guys, you 12 sitting here right now, and really, we're, we've been so privileged to be brought into this intimate setting via the Gospels. He's really, it's all of us sitting around this table with him. As he holds the cup, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is it. You drink this, you are entering into the so-called new covenant, the intrinsic, intimate relationship with God. And therefore, we're entering into the dream. The dream is not just a dream. It's becoming reality. But, 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 before you start feeling like, I must not be a Christian because I'm not experiencing any of that. Before you go that far, we need to understand that we are living in strange times. Because the king came and said the new covenant is here. But we also know that the darkness is still here too, right? We're living in this liminal space where we're half dreaming, but half still our eye open in the dark. We know the darkness is there, but we're seeing glimpses of the dream. We're in both right now because there's a, we're in the middle of a transition, which is going to shake everything. It's going to shake everything. And there's going to be the day, hopefully tomorrow, but probably not. Who knows? Um, for all, I mean, it could be tomorrow. Uh, Revelation 21. You have the new covenant becoming reality on earth. The dream is no longer a dream. We are fully awake. Uh, it says in 21, Revelation 21, 3, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe... That was, by the way, is the same wording in Jeremiah 31. I will be their God. They will be my people. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. All the darkness we see in the book of Jeremiah is being wiped away because the dream has become reality. The darkness has given way to the dawn of a new day. The dawn of a new day. This is the resurrection coming out from Jesus and be given to the whole world. You notice that in the Gospels, if you've noticed, maybe now you will notice, all four Gospels start the resurrection chapter with early in the morning at the dawn of the next day. All of them make 
Very clear. It's the very early part of the morning. Because the resurrection is when the darkness fades and the dream becomes true. Jesus did it ahead of everything to give us a preview of what's to come. It will come. The day will come when the darkness will end and we will wake up and it will no longer be night, the dreadful midnight, but it will be day, the dawn of a brand new day and we will be living in the very dream that Jeremiah is envisioning. All of the people scattered from everywhere will be on the roads coming home. There will be the great reunion and it'll be the dancing, the singing, the eating, or whatever. It's all just trying to tell us. Whatever is literally happening, it's all trying to tell us it will be good. Just as it began. It will be very good. So Jesus tells us the way. Jeremiah's like, let's put up road markers. And we're like, how do we find the way? Remember Thomas asked that? How do we know the way? Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And every time we hold up the cup of communion, we are reminded by Jesus' words saying, this blood is the new covenant. This is the way. This is, this is entrance into the new covenant as if you receive me. This is the dream becoming reality. So we see that. We see that this is real thing. Um, If you want to know what the rest of your reading was about, Jeremiah is in prison under Zedekiah. This is the very last year before Israel falls, 32, 33, 34. Um, He says a lot, some of it being restoration and kind of a little bit of hope like this, but one of the things that Jeremiah does at the beginning of chapter 32 is he buys a field. The land is about to be completely annihilated. Everybody's going to leave the land and be moved elsewhere. And Jeremiah, to prove that he believes his dream will become true one day, buys a plot of land. Real estate's plummeting, right? I mean, your land, like, like imagine a, a, a foreign nation about to take over all of America. That's not a good time to buy a house, right? It's not a good time. You're probably trying to sell and get something for it. Jeremiah does the opposite. He buys a plot of land to show the people how true he thinks the dream is, that there'll be a day when I'll get to come back to this plot of land. So to him, it's real. So for us, the dream, um, we may not, it may not be very alive in us. That's okay. That's okay. The darkness is real. We feel it. But what I think we need to do This is going to sound weird. We need to sleep. Now, I don't don't mean literally. You might need to literally sleep. It might be one of your resolutions to get more sleep. That's a good thing. But we need the kind of sleep we see Jesus sleeping. In Mark chapter 4, when the disciples are on the boat on the Sea of Galilee... And the windstorm picks up, right? And the waves are rough and the wind is hard. They're in darkness. They've entered into the darkness, just like every dreamer enters into the darkness. And they're so terrified. It's a nightmare. They scream out to Jesus, Save us! Don't you care that we're perishing? And what is Jesus doing? He's asleep. One gospel, I think it's marked from memory, one gospel goes so far to say he had a pillow. He is sound, cozy, asleep in the midst of this, for the disciples, the darkest time of their life. He's asleep. He uh, wakes up. 
rubs his eyes. Adding that, of course. Oh, wow, look at this. Wow. All he has to do is say, peace, be still. And the disciples finally get it. They finally get it. Jeremiah is inviting us. I think God is inviting us very metaphorically to dream in the darkness. To dream in the dark. Because the only alternative in the dark is to flip out, to worry, to live in fear, to start, and this is what we have a nation of. I'm not just talking spiritual people. We just have a nation of people living in fear. So what we do is we bite each other's heads off. We find scapegoats and blame this party or that person or that leader or this news organization. We, we're blaming people left and right. I mean, we're already deforesting all the forests, but we're also now deforesting people. Just chopping them down. Get, take out all the leaders. <laughs> because we live in fear. We're in darkness. And if we don't dream in the dark, we will panic. We will do things that humans ought not to do to each other in the dark. You have noticed, right, that most crimes are done in the dark. I think we need to sleep like Jesus was sleeping. Now, when you read that gospel, we have this, it's so comical, we sometimes don't take it seriously. We have this contrast of disciples losing their minds on one hand and in the very same boat as if it was accidentally copied and pasted in the wrong place and the editor missed it. I'm joking, of course. But we have Jesus asleep. It's like, how can this be? How, how, is it, are we sure this happened? Like, yeah, well, it's in all forgot, it's all, it's in three of the gospels, so yeah, it must have happened. <laughs> there he is asleep. Like, what? It's such a comical contrast, we miss sometimes what it means. And that is that when we're in the dark, rather than acting like the disciples, God wants us to sleep like Christ. And the sleep demonstrates absolute, complete trust. It's trust. You don't sleep when you don't feel safe. And I think we know that to an extent. We're fortunate enough to live in a safe country and we, for the most part, can sleep. My kids definitely exemplify that they need safety to sleep. And usually that means one of me or Brittany being right by their side, right? Most of you remember what that's like. Or know right now. Um, But to sleep means you feel secure and it means you're trusting that someone, whether it's mom, dad, or God, they have this under control. It might be dark, but it's under control. He's going to bring the day. And so the sleep says, you know what? It's dark. It's a good time to sleep. It's a good time to trust. It's a good time to dream. And so we need our eyes on God's future. We need a revisionist future, right? We need to let the dreams of the prophets and of scripture to change the way we fearscape what the future is going to look like.
We are so imaginative in a bad way. We instantly can fearscape the worst scenes in our heads, can't we? One little thing. One little thing. And we instantly blow it out of proportion. And suddenly the world's going to fall apart and we're going to lose everything. Your boss looks at you weirdly one day. You've created a story about how you're going to be homeless in a month. You may not really believe that, but our minds go there. Revisionist future, right? There's revisionist history where you kind of change what the history was, but revisionist future is where we are actively changing the future in our minds because we go to the worst. We imagine the dark will get darker and the sun's never coming up. But revisionist future is when we take the dreams of the prophets and of scripture seriously and we say that when I feel afraid, when I feel like I need to blame somebody, when I feel like I can't sleep, I need to take these dreams and say that's what the future is. I have to tell myself that so that I can trust. Because then, when I'm trusting, I'm sleeping and resting in the plan of God. And that's where we want to be. That's where Jeremiah is. We don't know where he was when he wrote this, but the very next chapter, he's in a prison from the king, who's supposed to be for him, but the king hasn't been in prison because Jeremiah said things that he doesn't like. It's possible that that's the context Jeremiah has these dreams. And if so, wow, that's wonderful for us. That if we choose to trust and sleep, we will have wild, vivid dreams of what God is going to do. And I don't think it's limited to just the faraway future. It's limited, or it's including what's he going to do tomorrow? Tomorrow, Monday, the 7th of January, 2019. What is going to happen? The possibilities. A dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. If we don't see the dream, it's because we're not sleeping. It's because we're not trusting. So we're going to take communion where we get to say, the new covenant's real. Even though it's not fully here, Christ showed us. He's brought it, it's begun, and he will finish it. Josh Larson said, Yearning is the most universal of prayers. An instinct even the most resolutely irreligious have. There are free... These are frequently the prayers we don't speak out loud, for they are offered to a God we are not sure is listening. My friends, we can speak our greatest yearning out loud to our God, because as you hold the broken body and poured blood in your hands, it says loud and clear, I am here. And I am listening. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Paul lists a ton of things that could potentially create fear and anxiety in us. But ultimately, nothing can separate us. So the Christian can lie down and sleep. And he can awake and say, wow, that was pleasant. But what we want to do 
is we want to come to a place where we can sleep in our Father's arms. So we give our fears to you. We give the darkness to you. We give the things we don't understand to you. We give the problems to you. We give our impulses to control and manipulate things to try to make it better to you. We look at the winds and the waves and the rocking boat and we give that to you. And Lord, we want one image in our minds. We want to see the image of Christ asleep on a pillow in that rocking boat. And we want to be there with him dreaming in the dark.